With interest rates rising, it's time to be smart with your investments. Many agents lure you into the traditional way of investing in property. They give it to their property manager to make it available to Joe Public. They get enough rent to just pay your mortgage interest repayments. But it's not enough for you to pay all the expenses, so you have to negative gear. So there has to be a better way. To find out more, we have the property guru, Goro Gupta, here to tell us how to make more money out of your investments. You're listening to Real Estate Right. Top experts talk about how to buy, sell, rent, and invest right. Your host is Sue Langder. Real Copyright is more than a residential sales copywriting service. We also do rental properties, commercial properties, Airbnb and short-term stay properties. We write about the people in real estate. We write development projects and we can write your website. If you want to know more about what Real Copyright can do for you, give us a call on 5977-889 or go to www.realcopyright.com.au to find out more. Goro Gupta is a high-profile property investor with many strings to his bow. He is the owner of 10 properties in 10 years, ethical property investments, and is a property developer. He has been featured in Australian Property Investor Magazine and is all about empowering livability for all. Here to help our listeners understand about how to create high cash flow investments. Welcome, Goro. How are you today? Good, Sue. How's it going? Yeah, great, thanks. Thank you for coming on to Real Estate Right podcast today. Um, just to give our listeners a bit of background, how did you get into property investment? Um, well, Dad took me along to a seminar when I was, I would say, 16 or 15. Um, it was such a long time ago. I'm a little bit older than that now, right? Um, yeah, when I, when I was 16 or 15. And he was like, look, we're doing really well and we're doing relatively well in business, but I'm taking, I'm now considering taking the money out of business and investing into property. And I'd like you to learn this skill. And along yeah. at those events, I learned about, you know, some different types of investing in property, learned about this whole rich dad, poor dad thing. So like literally I was given the book, rich dad, poor dad by my dad. I learned about uh, both the mindset of the wealthy and actually investing in property so much so yeah. that when I was turning 18, my parents gave me a choice. They said, Goro, we can help you put a deposit down on your first property, which was a little studio apartment in Melbourne City, or yeah. we can buy you your dream car. Now, my dream car back then wasn't a, you know, a, a very expensive Mercedes. It was yeah. a Lexus Sora. And I dreamt about this car. It was on the background of my, you know, um, background of everything on my computer and everything. Um, and what what I did was I picked property display, yeah. to, to the dismay of all my friends and even a, a little part of me. Yes. Um, I'm very blessed that I picked property, but that was the mindset I was uh, I grew up in. And yes, they did give me a leg up on my very first property. Now, people might think that was hundreds of thousands of dollars. Seriously, they chipped in 15 grand. Yeah. It wasn't that much, right? Yeah. Um, so I know there's some people out there with parents who chipped in hundreds of thousands. That was 15 grand. That's all it was. Um, I kept driving the Camry, um, you know, being being brown. We had to drive a Camry, right? Yeah. Me down for my parents um, with wind down <laughs> windows. 
Um, yes. <laughs> um, and so, look, what I did is that was my first property, and I bought my first. Uh, that was a studio apartment city. I would not say that was a good investment in the long term, but it got yeah. me into property. Then I picked up my second one. I think I was about twenty um, or nineteen when I picked up my second one, and that one had I picked up for three hundred fifty thousand townhouse in Mitcham. It's now worth close to a mil. So, yeah. and you still have it? Yes, I do. I still own it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, we're talking. 20 years uh yeah so that was about 20 years ago now uh just over 20 yeah so yeah. and look they're, they're probably tripled in value in almost 20 years so i'm not complaining about that at all and it should be paid off if not uh no i've got another strategy that i follow with that <laughs> yes. yeah so this is the thing about this podcast it's about strategizing and and basically creating high cash flow investments through strategy not the traditional ways yes yeah right. cool so getting into the questions mm -hmm. obviously like as a background let's sort of start from the the, the, the foundations mm -hmm. most people look at a traditional way of investing which is obviously buying a property going to the property manager asking them to rent it out to joe public um for minimal amount and you know you contributing to the mortgage costs because yeah. it doesn't the more the rent doesn't quite cover the mortgage or the owner's court fees or the rates or yeah. even sometimes you have to pay a water bill too um and maintenance mm -hmm. that would be the traditional way yeah yes yeah, yeah. okay so now there's other ways obviously you have mm -hmm. more strategic yeah so let's discuss how um most people who you convince to um go from that traditional way which is really an underperforming investment into a high cash flow investment yes. yeah so what do you look for okay in terms of property so very very firstly um i want to cover off the first aspect and what most people do just so there's a comparison point uh, most people get into property in what they call negative gearing, which they pay more than whatever the, uh, they pay more on top of the rent they receive for the investment property, uh, and they may get a tax benefit. And that net tax may be, leave their property neutral, or in most cases negative, especially with the new rise of interest rates. So we've had an interest rate rise over the last few months. So yeah. Whatever we're looking at will be most likely negatively or neutrally geared. And Melbourne real estate specifically from an investor point of view, cash flow wise is the lowest performing investment in the country officially. Um, the, the media put a spin on it yesterday and I was listening to this uh, and it was Melbourne is now the most affordable market for renters, oh. right? That was the spin. But what that means that the average yield of a property and we can do some, I'll, I hope you don't mind, I'll get my calculator out now yeah. um, so I can do some calculations because I'm a numbers guy. Um, yeah. And I'll, I'll share with you why I'm a big numbers guy um, after that. But the average yeah. yield of Melbourne property is $470 a week. Uh, the median price on a property of uh, Melbourne is uh, is roughly about $850,000. Right? Yeah. So let's let's do averages because that's what we're yeah. talking about. Joe Public average, 470 times 52, that's 24440 divided by 850000 which is the median price in Melbourne. And we're left 
with a glorious 2.87% yield. When the mortgage is 4% plus, and even yeah. if you only leverage at 80%, that means your mortgage is 3%. That means whatever rent you're getting on average in Melbourne, you will have to top up. And yeah. for most people, that's fine. But yeah. where there's an uncertainty in the market, like most investors, uh, when they choose to invest in property, are now investing in property that's cash flow negative, mm-hmm. neutral at best. Uh, and I know there's outliers, etc. And what we decided to do, basically, interest rates still have a little while to go, and it's fine. Um, I don't think they'll go 1% above where they are today. Yeah. Um, but that's just a prediction. You can watch this podcast later and then find out. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but what happened was that a couple of different factors happened about seven or eight years ago in my life. Number one, my dad came to me and said, hey, our interest-only loans, a lot of them are going into principal and interest. And by the way, a little bit of background. Today, between my dad and I, we own 35-plus properties yeah, around the world. Right? Yeah. yeah. So um, when we say 10 properties in 10 years, it's because we've been there and done that. I think our record is 10 properties in four years. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and, and the reason why we're able to do that is because we were investing in property so heavily, we decided to become mortgage brokers, both dad and myself, mm-hmm. um, and learn the secrets on how to purchase more property, right? So we went on an acquisition spree, but then in a negatively geared environment, you can only hold on so much yeah. because lifestyle changes. Dad was going through his retirement phase in life. He's like, look, I'm not going to be earning much income, so I need these properties to perform. What else do we need to acquire in order to rebalance our portfolio? Yeah. Right? And at the same time, I'd kind of hit retirement with the money I was making. And I know I'm under 40 and uh, there's a community out there called FIRE, financially and and retire early. Um, I'm a big proponent of that. Tim Ferriss talks about that. So I kind of hit retirement effectively uh, from a financial point of view. Yeah. Right. Um, I had passive income coming in from whatever I was doing. And I'm like, you know what? This is nice. And... um, I got invited to spend a week with Richard Branton on his island. Wow. And I know people are like, what has this got to do with property? But there's a a moral of this story, right? I promise you. Um, So I got invited to spend a week with Richard Branson on the island before I was about to hit the donate button to $20,000 US um, to go to the island. And this is going back seven years ago. I called up my friend who invited me and said, AJ, what the hell do you guys talk about on the island? Like, I don't want to go there for a pretty Facebook profile photo. Yeah. That's not what I'm there for. I'm there for actually seeing what it's about. And I want to be mentored Richard too, right? Yeah, uh, call, me, call me aspirational or optimistic. Yeah. That's what yeah. I want. Uh, and he said, they talk about social enterprise. And I said, huh, what the hell is social enterprise? Yeah. And I did the digging and it turned out a social enterprise is something that gives back to the community and makes a profit. What a concept. Yay right what a concept yeah and um what happened was that i then politely declined the invitation to go hang out richard because i felt at that stage i wasn't good enough to be on the island because i needed to have a successful social enterprise before i went on yeah fair enough so i put it out there that you know within the next 12 months i'll create a successful social enterprise and i'll help fix some of our portfolio problems which are negatively geared 
Yeah. And yeah. they're about to, their loans were about to cost us another, I think, 20000 a month extra. Yeah, which is right? a lot. Across our portfolio. Right? Yeah. That's a lot of money. It's a lot. Right? Because it was going from interest only to principal interest. So we had to find, you know, I had, I had uh, ambition and we had uh, the need. So what happened about a month later, because if you put it out there in the universe, call it whatever it is, some people call it the secret, some people call it visualization. Yeah. Uh, one of my clients came to me and said, hey, I work in the disability sector and this new thing called NDIS is coming out. Yeah. And I think there's a pathway for me to build a house. And I have a property mentoring company already. I've had 10 properties in 10 years for a while. And she was one of my clients. And she put together a little proposal and presentation. And I said, well, this could be a way of me achieving the social enterprise. And I dug deeper that I realized it could solve our portfolio problems. But the only problem was no one had ever freaking done it. Yeah. Because it was so new. And NDIS was this whole revamp to the disability system. Yeah. <clears throat> so anyway, um, long story short, uh, we, we turned that, uh, we, I said to Nicole, hey, look, let's get into business together. Let's become SDA providers. It'll be a side hustle. Yeah. Right. Little did we know um, that little side hustle is now the largest housing provider for people with disabilities. Uh, that's been, and it's been uh, in Victoria and it's been publicly endorsed by Bill Shorten, current minister of NDIS, yeah. the previous minister of NDIS and the current shadow minister of NDIS, who is also the previous assistant treasurer and Minister for Housing. And we've got 10 employees. It's, it's a multi-million dollar company. And that's what our little side hustles turned into. Um, so How the social enterprises- like three, four years. years. Um, that's over the last five plus years. Five plus years. Yeah. So um, the side hustle ended up taking over our lives. Yeah. And yeah. we are now, we're now sort of almost one of the reference groups that, uh, that um, the government relies on. Yeah. And we're still one of the only companies that um, the NDIS themselves have actually done a case study on yeah. for housing people with disabilities because we're doing things the right way and we have the longevity and we're not doing over-the-top promises out there. Yeah. So we have experience in the market so much so that we, depending on which statistics you look at, between 10 to 20% of the available people with the right disability yeah. who need housing, we are their property managers effectively. We're the accommodation providers in Victoria, yeah, right? Um, and there's pros and cons to investing in NDIS housing, but that's the way how we got into it. And because leaders go first between my dad and myself, we purchased 10 of these houses yeah. to solve some of our potential cash flow issues. We took a risk at that stage where we do not know what we were going to do. And the risk- Paid off. Paid off. Yeah. Right? Um, so we're, we're with that particular program, I know a lot of people watching this is a real estate. Yeah. We are earning multiple six figures passive in our personal portfolios yes. Um, yes. through those properties that we've structured and done ourselves. It's impressive. Yes. Very impressive. So yeah. that's how we've gone to disability housing. Yeah. So that's one way, isn't it? That's, that's one way. That's one way. Um, and I'll just really briefly talk about the right of what to do there and what not to do there. Yeah. And then I'd love to talk about some of the other ways and why we explored past NDIS because yeah. People probably on this podcast like, hey, if NDIS was so lucrative, why don't I just do that and that alone? Yeah. And I'll tell you right now, investing in NDIS is not for everyone. Yeah. In fact, for a lot of people, 
especially if it's for your first investment, I do not recommend you look at NDIS. Obviously, it's not financial advice. Yeah. This is just advice from knowing the ups and downs of investing in property because those challenges are accentuated in the NDIS yes. world. Because and, that's, it's, and that's the thing, most people who buy their first investment property, it's a very emotional decision. It's not a business decision yet. Yes. Yeah. And then yes. once you've done three, four, five, you know, other properties, it starts becoming more of a business, you know, black yeah. and white financial yeah. decision. Yeah. The ideal person who comes and invests in NDIs already owns two plus properties. Yeah. Um, and they're the right sort of person that should look at it deeper because they realize the pros and cons. I mean, some of the cons are if you get the wrong property manager, the wrong SDA provider, yeah. um, then you won't be able to lease out your property. And the what because the way the NDIS housing works is that it's not just that you build a house and NDIS will lease it out. It's not like defense housing. Very, very different to defense housing. Yeah. The way the it works, and it can be lucrative if you do it right, yeah. is that you have to partner up with a company that isn't just a sales agency, but a company that has an association with a reputed provider. Yeah. Right? The provider's responsibility is to find the tenant and access the funds from the tenant's plan and pay it to the landlord. Yeah. There's no other authorization beyond that. The landlord is not allowed to have a direct relationship with the tenant or the NDIS. Yeah. Has to go through an accommodation provider. Yeah. Right. So those are some of the pros and cons that, uh, you know, as we dig deeper and you have to build much larger houses, for example, to make it wheelchair accessible. Yeah. There's competition yeah. out there. So you have to go over and above the rules and regulations to make sure everyone has a private ensuite, things like that. You basically have to build a, a wheelchair rooming house. Yeah. So you need to have wider doors. Yes. You need to have wide hallways. Yes. Um, so, I mean, most doors these days are anywhere from 720 to 820. We build 1020 sized doors. Yeah. Right. So over a meter wide. So there's a lot of over-engineering. And in today's, obviously, today's uh, market is today's market. If you're watching this podcast at a different time, hey, it's going to be different. To give you an idea, the build alone for a four-bedroom, four-and-a-half bathroom house, which can get you somewhere between, um, I would say, seventy to $80,000 rental income. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The build alone is 600000 That includes fire sprinkler systems as well. Yeah. Right. Add your land cost, you need 500 square meters plus to build one of these. Um, so, you know, it's in, in the southeast near where you live, Sue, it's a 1.1 to $1.2 million transaction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's not cheap. But if you're getting 6% returns and you may have to, if you don't have a large enough deposit, you may have to go to a specialist lender, which lends you specially for this product because normal banks will not lend you for this product. Yeah. Right, unless you're ready to put in more of a deposit because there'll be valuation shortcuts. Yes. Right. But there are specialist lenders out there that'll do a commercial valuation on this. Um, that you know, my team are happy to give you access. So that's to. the thing, the banks do everything conservatively based on the fact that their valuations are the traditional rental style. Yes. And yes, you know, knowing that you need to have that commercial valuation because it is a commercial enterprise in the end. Isn't yes. It? Yeah. I mean, people people like why the rent's so high. Well, six to eight percent is normal yield on a commercial yeah. property, right? Um, so commercial value gets yeah. done. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So that's some of the pros and cons. If you do it the wrong way, 
Um, here's a warning for everyone watching this. If you do it the wrong way, you could be left with an over-engineered house that you can only rent, it, rent out to the normal market, right? So don't try to say, I'm gonna find whatever cheapest provider there is, because honestly, it takes my team alone and we're the largest provider. Yeah. Um, it takes my team somewhere between three to 600 hours to tenant one house. Wow. That's prior to the house completing, yeah. right? Yeah. So you need to deal with the right company. Yeah. But once the tenants are in there, they're in there for a long term. Um, as long as you build the house right and you go with a provider that's reputed that finds the right care yeah. provider. So, yeah. Right. So is it essentially like a sublet? So you're, you know, you're the landlord, you have the rental provider, and then they're getting the money on behalf yes. of the disabled person. Yes. And therefore, and then they yeah. rent it out to that disabled person. And then obviously, yeah. You hit the nail on the head. So it's a head lease with a sublease arrangement. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly it. So it, the Empowered Livability, which is my company, which is the SCA provider, is a cross between the head leasor and a property manager. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So yeah. obviously that's one strategy. Yes. How about the rooming house strategy? That's a bit of a Yes. So let's talk about two other strategies. Um, one which is what I call my ethical property range, and then one which is a pure share yeah. house, right? So a little while ago, about three years ago, I identified that, hey, there's gonna be a challenge because there's two limits within NDIS yeah. housing, yeah. right? Because it, like for those first few years, all like eight breathed, eight breathed and you know slept, it was NDIS, NDIS, NDIS. That's when those properties were 700,000, 800,000 to yeah. build, right? Yeah. Things have evolved significantly since then, not just the build, um, build cost, but also the build design requirements, right? And so I identified as the build requirements were changing because we get previous to them that we're going to need to move beyond this. And so I said, and at the same time, we had organizations coming to us saying, Goro, we love what you're doing with disability housing. What about housing women over 50 who are at risk of homelessness? Yeah. What about housing people even with lower level disabilities who won't qualify for housing yeah. funding? What about housing people with, um, you know, uh, domestic violence victims, yeah. right? Yeah. Can you create a solution for them, right? And so I went to work, right? Yeah. Uh, and I created three different models now um, of basically housing that is similar to high quality rooming housing, but gets leased out in a very similar style to what we're doing with NDIs through a government backed agency, okay. right? So whether it's a domestic violence respite provider, whether it's, you know, um, housing prevention, uh, homelessness prevention for women over 50. So that's, these are ethical yeah. things that, the, yeah. that, you know, there's in Victoria, here's the stats that I found out recently. Yeah. There's currently a shortage of 20,000 homes for this type of, you know, for social wow. housing. Right? So really it's bringing, it's creating a commercial solution for a social housing yeah. problem. How do we, yeah. how do we make, look, how do we make this accessible to investors and make it, make investors want to invest in this. Well, if we're providing normal rents, investors, for even from the bottom of their heart, aren't going to over-engineer property in order to provide housing. Yeah. We need to provide over and above market expectations, right? And so I created four, five, and six bedroom models um, mm -hmm. that, you know, the build starts from 400 and goes all the way to, you know, 550. 
yeah. uh, depending on what size of land we need and how much rental uh, we need. But we can get between $800 to $1,200 a week. That's between double to triple what the market out there provides, the property next door. right? And we get that as a fixed rent agreement for between six to 10 years with increases every year because of my association with government agencies. And that product's very, very unique to us. Yeah. Um, so that's one form of, I call that, some people may call that rooming housing, but yeah. because there's a head lease arrangement, then a sublease arrangement, it really is an ethical, you know, ethical property. We call that accelerate in-house. Yeah. So our NDI's properties are called Elevate because it's elevated above the rest. Accelerators yes. accelerate your wealth um, yeah. and your portfolio. But at the same time, you as an investor, mum and dad investor, are helping someone live a better quality life, not just through regular housing, but in some cases, you may be saving someone's life. Oh, definitely, yeah. Domestic violence respite. You, you literally, that's required so much. With those rooming houses, does it mean that each bedroom has their own bathroom? Yes. So built to class 1B requirements, everyone's got their own private ensuite because I looked at, I, I said, I went to the providers and I said, what do your tenants want? What do your tenants yeah. value, right? Uh, because we can build, you know, uh, uh, you know, someone that designs buildings and creates products and puts packages together can go, okay, here's what I think the market yeah. wants. Well, yeah. that's not really useful, right? I mean, marketing 101, you find out what your clients want and you give them what they want, not what you think they want, right? So I went to the housing provider and said, what do your yeah. tenants want? What is their perfect situation? Now, we can't give them everything that's on their perfect list. We can't give them individual yeah. pillars, but we'll give them the next closest thing, and that's rooming yeah. houses, right? In private en suites, a private space they can retreat to if they ever need to, as well as a shared common space for things like cooking. So we don't put in those houses um, things like kitchenettes. That's very important. That we don't put kitchenettes in every room because we want people to be social during mealtime. And that's important. That's really important, especially if you're in a situation where you're a domestic violence victim, you know, you've been given this room, you know, it may have, would it have a spare bed for the kids if, you know, or something like that? No, so this is for women who don't oh, okay. have kids. Uh, that's the respite yeah. providers. Uh, yeah. That's who it's primarily for, or, or very young children who don't need a yeah, separate room. Fair enough. Um, but for instance, if you, if you're feeling in danger, um, like would you have like video security and all lots of stuff so that if something. Yeah. So the providers make sure they put in video security um, and the house remains confidential. So. Uh, I do sometimes get invested. Can you show me a house you built? I'm like, well, really, the nature of it says right. that I can't really show it to you. I can show you a video of one that we've done earlier. I can't tell you the address. You can't yeah. walk past it. There is strict privacy rules yeah. around this. Yeah, which is, you know, very reassuring, isn't it, for the people who want to live there? Mm. Yeah. yeah. And they're not for yeah. long-term stays, really, are they? They're more for, you know, short-term. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So, which leads us to a challenge, right? I mean, how do we package this up in a way that investors get consistent yeah. income? Agencies get funding yeah. from the government to provide support services in the house, right? And they recoup the actual costs of the rooms. Um, the way I've structured it, they recoup the costs of the rooms from every individual pe person that lives in the house. Um, but what happens is that their responsibility is to cover any vacancy risk yeah. in the house. Right. And they do that because they get paid by the government, you know, a, a fee to do yeah. some care and um, or what have you. If you if you look at it, that's how we've structured the deal. That's consistent income for an yeah. investor. And then we have one other type of housing, Sue. OK, what other type of housing do you have? Right. We have a share house. 
People are like, what's the difference between rooming and a share house? Okay. Well, a rooming house or one of our ethical houses, we have to build a class 1B. Yes. In our share house, we don't have to build a class 1B, but we build it in a way where we can have three people living under one roof. Yeah. Right? Um, and our good friend manages it, the person who introduced us, right? Um, and he manages those houses with three individual people they can meet people from any walk of life who want to lease out a house. They can be friends. They don't have to be friends. Um, some of the Indian investors out there, people who are in India, know this type of housing is PG houses or paying guest houses. Uh, you know, uh, so that's sort of the, what we sort of base this on. And this is a house that looks like and feels like every other house out there. The build cost is really not much more. You might be spending about 10K more on the build in order to achieve 750 to $900 a week rent, which is effectively double the rent compared to the property next door. Yeah. So these are kind of attracting, say, doctors who are not, you know, they've got homes somewhere else, but they need to be close to work. Yes. Or they could be attracting... Six-month contractors. Yeah. Like work, you know, building contractors who have got, you know, a, a project on a tunnel or a road thing or whatever for the government, mm. and they have family on the other side of town and they just can't justify but they're making big dollars on those projects, aren't they? Yeah. Um, you know, enough. And, to- it, and it costs them 250 to $300 a week just to unpack their bags and have yeah. everything there for them. The house is fully furnished. It's yeah. basically like a, a cheaper motel room, right? Yeah. Um, and then they don't have to worry about, you know, electricity and gas because no. that's all inclusive. The landlord pays for that out of the out of the double the market rent, which is really not that much, you know. It's, so, I mean, really, what, when we have a chat to investors, we say, look, allocate 50 to $60 a week for utilities, yeah. right? We're not putting in split systems into every room, unlike our other houses where we are putting split systems into every room. So the costs um, are a little bit less. We put solar in these houses. So um, basically what, we, what our outcome is here is to house um, general population, not spend more than what we need to in a normal house. I mean, the build build prices range from 350 to 380. That's really reasonable, right? Yeah. In Pakenham, for example, we're doing we've got a deal on right now, 760,000. I can get $900 a week rent for that house in Pakenham. Amazing. Right? That's yeah. what the rental appraisal's coming at. Um, in the west, uh, to give you an idea, so Windenvale, one of my clients picked up this property. Um, picked up the house in land. So these have to be built. All of the properties we've built have to be built custom um this property is built custom we picked it up for just under six hundred fifty thousand uh, about 10 months ago house and land and we have now consequently leased this out for 750 dollars a week a month before it's completed wow right so it's already ready to go ready to go there's tenants ready to go who've signed a lease going sight unseen we just know where the rough location is um and the way that works is that it's a it's it's the house is suitable for three people. Everyone's got a private ensuite. There's actually yeah. a lot of space compared to other houses for them, and that's how that's how a lot of investors out there can look at generating um, higher income yield. But you do need access to a good property manager who understands the pros and cons. Yeah. So could this work really well in regional areas where they're like are expanding the infrastructure, and obviously you've got to be having lots of trades you know, coming into towns to do these things on six-month, 12-month projects. So, you know, you've got that almost guarantee that there's going to be people to use it. But then again, 
five, ten years down the track, although the infrastructure's all been done. Mm. That's a good question. Strategy, wouldn't you? Yeah. So you could always list it out as a normal house compared to the, yeah. like, I mean, you're only spending five, 10K more than a normal house. So yeah. you, you have the backup plan to list it out as a normal house because it looks, acts, and feels like a normal house. What you've done as, as a landlord is furnish it. The beauty of that is, is that you've done majority of the paying off of the, of the investment yeah. in those first five, six years. Yes. And That's then right. it's increased in value and reduced in yeah. rent but that's okay I, I actually didn't think about that that's that's a great point um you've captured the depreciation you've got the highest income and if you follow the right mortgage strategy there are people out there um full disclosure i have a i have a team in my finance company that teaches people how to do this um yeah. we call it the mortgage terminator strategy you should be able yeah. to pay off home loans in you know five to seven years yeah, and that's one reason why I haven't paid off that um, house. Uh, my second investment property is because my focus is paying off my existing owner occupier first. Okay. Right. Yeah, which is what everyone should do. Yes, you pay off your largest liabilities first, and your own home is your biggest liability. Yeah. Yeah. All good. Now I know these things aren't what your business is all about, but. In terms of other high cash flow investments, we have talked about or touched on it, um, like commercial property. Commercial mm. property is another way to get a high cash flow yes. investment. I, I've actually owned quite a few commercial properties and they're, they're yeah. really good as long as you get the right tenant. Um, yeah. Stay away from apartment style or big inner city style um, commercials is my recommendation for someone that yeah. wants to get into commercial. Um, I love commercial when a government entity leads us it out or a charity or something like that, because I get consistent rent um, all the time. They want, you know, six, 10-year lease terms. And yeah. you get great, you know, six to 8% yields in the market. Yeah. So, yeah, it's good. It's a good. Um, you need high, higher dollar figure to buy it. You need 70% LVR, and they don't grow as much as a resi property does. Okay. But you get good cash flow. Yes. Yeah. By the way, that's, how, that's why I, I'm doing what I'm doing. I, I wanted to create a commercial yield for a yeah. resi property. That was sort yeah. of one of the reasons why we went down that path. Yeah, yeah. sounds good. Um, now, I know my mum's a bit of an advocate for this one, but she does a bit of short-term investing in development projects. Oh. So essentially what she does is she gives the developer, you know, we don't draw yeah. figures, um, <laughs> But she's like basically an investor in a, pro a development project. Um, it might be for two years just to carry them through the costs of creating the project. And then they paid all back. And she goes, oh, no, they paid on time. They paid on, you know, they paid extra for this and that and all that sort of stuff. And so she's yeah. happy. Um, and she'll have a few of those going on at the same time. So that's another way of investing money in property without having to go through the stamp duty and the... Yeah all the other costs that are associated because all you're doing is putting yes. money into and so a lot of those are, are done through what they call real estate investment trust structures yeah. yes and then i think she does hers through australian entity australian so, unity so. wow yeah um yeah. I, yeah. I i'm not allowed to disclose but let's just say there, there's a relationship between my disability housing company and australian unity that's all i'm allowed oh, to really? say that's all, that's all, all i'm allowed to say. to say before i get into trouble Okay. <laughs> so indirectly, Sorry. your mum and us may actually be doing something together already without her knowledge. Possibly. Who knows? <laughs> she said that she's actually been doing it since the 70s. Oh, wow. So 
it's it's not necessarily a uh, new thing. Yeah. By the by the way, for for the ethical properties and the NDIS properties, just circling back to that just a little bit, we have a lot of funds in the ethical yeah. and healthcare space that invests in our projects. Um, yeah. So. Um, if you see a lack of advertising around for what we do, it's because, well, we're kind of okay for that kind of thing. Um, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, um, that's why, because we have those funds. But I'm actually looking at creating a similar fund to that for some of the ethical housing where yeah. people can yeah. invest in that from this superannuation, for example. Um, yeah. And they might be able to invest 100000 200000 from the super with a yearly return and a guaranteed buy it after two years when a fund picks up the completed property. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So, and that having that backing, it gives you a bit more reassurance, doesn't it? That this is actually a really good idea. It's nothing that's hidden under the, the, right. the rug. You have to be careful. You, you, don't, you yeah. want to deal with the reputed product. Australian Unity, reputed company. Yes, they probably want to provide as high returns as someone out there but there's another company out there that i've seen i will name them even though i'm not a fan of naming people but you know this is out in the media it's public news um there's the i think i believe they were called the hopkins hopkins group but there was a gentleman by the name sasha hopkins that was promoting similar things unfortunately none of that panned out um and i in the past have worked for companies that promoted land banking investments under similar schemes that have not worked out for people and that's why if you're going to do it that way, my suggestion is do it with the right company. Do your research. How do you know who's the right company? Like Australian Unity is big enough. They've got a yeah. reputation. Um, yeah. But in the current market where there's interesting things happening, yeah. my suggestion is maybe put a pause on that for about 12 months uh, because we don't know. In, in the winter of business, right, Tony Robbins, but by the way, those that don't already know, I'm a senior leader with Tony Robbins as well. So I follow a lot yeah. of his philosophies. They invite me to his events um, to help out, um, help participants. But Tony calls it winter. We're on winter of business. Winter yeah. is where a lot of money gets lost, but the most amount of future money gets made, right? Yes. So in winter, even the largest companies such as ProBuild can fail, right? Um, yeah. It is very important that, you don't stop investing, though, despite that fear, because also the largest companies we know of today, um, like GE, right, um, yeah. and a lot of other companies were created during the Great Depression, um, which yeah. is the last winter cycle we really saw in the world. Yeah. And that's the thing, General Electric, GE, yeah. um, they just, like, their name says it all. Like, they're down back to basics and, you know, and learn to grow kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, They're actually one of the largest finance companies in the world, believe it or not. Oh, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. yeah. So we yeah. used to do uh, a lot of personal loans, um, and GE was one of our top referrals um, that yeah. we used to refer people to. But um, they then moved to Latitude Finance. Out there, people who were in the personal loan world, they know Latitude Finance. GE basically sold their personal loan business to Latitude. But that's this is it's, it's interesting. I don't recommend anyone stops investing. That would yeah. be a loss of future growth because by the time you try to pick the bottom and we are not america here guys um we have full recourse lending and i'd love to share what that means in a moment but if you don't invest now you're losing a huge potential upside um in australian real estate it's very hard to pick the bottom 
people tried to pick the bottom in 2008. Let me share a little bit of history about what yeah. happened in Australia versus USA because people are like, oh, the sky's falling, everything's going to crash. Well, you know what? During the GFC, which is the largest property crash the world has ever seen, yes. the Melbourne market, I have stats up my sleeve, so I know the Melbourne market like back of my hand, um, yeah. 6 to 9% drop. 6 to 9 That's yeah. nothing. Do you know how much it went up the next year? Uh, probably about 15 or something. Yeah, like somewhere between 12 and 15%. Yeah. Who would have loved to buy property at the peak of the GFC just before things dropped? I know. I mean, we that, was nice. that was what, 2008? Eight. Eight. I would love yeah. to buy a lot more properties in 2008, wouldn't you? Yeah. So See, I bought a property in 2009 and then had to sell it because I you know, got rid of the ex-husband. Um, two years later, it actually oh. made a loss, which, you know, <laughs> that happens. Um, but I'd actually sold the house in 2007 and then we rented for a couple of years. So, well, Would you like to know why the Australian market for property reacts very differently to the US market? Why? So there's two reasons, and the first one is going to be super controversial. Yeah. Politicians okay. own most of their asset bases in property in Australia. Yeah. Right? So guess what they're going to do? They're going to just keep their coffers up high. Yes. It's human nature. Call it yeah. unsettling or whatever it is. Someone on my Facebook said that was unsettling and trying to blame stomach for it. Hey, even Labor people own property. Guess what? Right? Um, so people on all sides of politics, maybe not the Greens, uh, own property. That is the number one investment vehicle for Australians, including politicians. So I was reading about good on Philip Lowe, and uh, apparently, yes, he fully owns all his property, makes $931,000 a year, um, yet let's put some strain on the, you know, Joe public yeah. with these interest rate rises, yeah. Well, the world is kind of raising its interest rates. They're just trying to keep up with the world. Um, yeah. My prediction is we're going to see deflationary action from China at the end of the year. There's various reasons for that. Uh, but it'll sort itself out before the end of the year. We won't see as significant inflation. Um, and this whole talk about the property market crashing, still we, yeah. property market across Melbourne has only gone down 1.8%. Um, yeah. And the second reason I was going to get to this is yeah. why I don't believe we our property market will see significant crash is Number one is very important, by the way, a very controversial, yeah. but a very important thing that not many people think about. Um, yeah. Case in point, um, at the start of COVID, we had home builder come in. There was no reason or rhyme. Market was already quite buoyant, but yeah. they did whatever they could to protect themselves, right? Um, yeah. I'm going to put that aside for just a moment and let's talk about the lending differences in America versus Australia. Right? Yes. In America, you can get fixed term loans of 30%. Of 30 years, believe it or not. So that's actually a problem. Wow. But a con is for the banking system, and this is what happened during the GFC, um, effectively liar loans, what we call them in Australia, were sold and packaged up as bonds. But what they can, what someone can do, if you own a property and you decide to go bankrupt tomorrow, you can hand back the keys and the bank can't come after you because it's only securitized against the asset. Yes, I actually have had a friend who had to deal with that. So yes. I do completely understand that. Right. Yep. So in Australia, if you go bankrupt, the bank's still going to come after you if you, yep. if you hand back your keys until you pay back the debt or a negotiated debt. So it's, yep. a, it's called what we call a full recourse loan. Um, we do have non-recourse or partial recourse loans here in Australia. That goes into your self-managed super fund. That's why super loans are very expensive. 
compared to, and very limited things as what you can do in a self-managed super loan. But you cannot do that in your own personal name or even a trust in these days because it's what we call a full, Australia has a full recall system. And so people consequently would sell their cars first, by the way, which cars are going through a growth cycle at the moment, aren't they? People would rather sell their cars before selling their homes, right? And that's how our banking system works. So we don't see the significant like 40, 50% increases in a year like the USA can see. Um, And we see a good growth year is 15%. That's a good growth year in Australia. That's puny compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. Right? Um, So anyway, that's my little rant about why we won't see big drops and big gains. It's just the, you know, yeah. USA, yeah. Fair enough. After the break, we will talk to Goro about some of the ongoing pros and cons investors might have when it comes to high cash flow investments. You're listening to Real Estate Right. I'm your host, Sue Langada, and I'm talking with Goro Gupta from 10 Properties in 10 Years about how to create high cash flow investments. So, Goro, now we've got a pretty solid understanding of, of, of how we can make some high cash flow investments. Um, if we are renting our properties out to NDIS patients, domestic violence victims, or even those who can only afford a room in a rooming house, what concerns should we have regarding how well they look after their properties? Well, number one, you, if you're doing um, a house for domestic violence respite or disability housing, you need to make sure you're dealing with the right provider who knows the rules and regulations and how to protect you, the landlord, while protecting the interests of the tenants. So um, the provider's responsibility is to play that fine line. And so our fine line is, when it comes to any of the domestic violence respite or social housing, is that if if it's wear and tear, it's on the landlord. If it's malicious damage, it is the provider or the renter's responsibility. Right. Okay. Same thing we have in our share housing, by the way. That's the same rule. Yeah. In disability, we have that same rule, which is once yeah. again, wear and tear is on the landlord and, yeah. you know, um, damage is by the tenant. Um, there's a live example I've got of one of my own properties in the southeast where this yeah. is happening, um, where someone's, you know, pushed a wheelchair into the wall and there's yeah. some damage, right? Well, that, that person or their carer has to pay for that negligence. Right. Yeah. However, the house is looking tired and could do with a repaint. It's been five years. It's it's been these houses get a lot more wear and tear than a regular house. I mean, there's you know, three, four, five people, in some cases, six people living in the house. You've got the carers, if it's a disability house, you've got people in wheelchair, they see a significant amount of wear in the house, right? So after five years, you give it another lick of paint. Right. Yeah. That's not unreasonable. You know, so after, just to, it's it's really what you normally do in a normal rental yeah, anyway. It's probably a little bit more accelerated. You probably paint your house after seven years. In this case, we've done after four or five years. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's more things like, you know, the the punch in the door, you know, yeah. which is wrong the door frame, you know, or the wall or whatever, you know, because, you know, there's frustrations yeah. with people so with disabilities. And- in disability housing, there is one additional rule that investors need to be concerned about when yeah. it comes to that. Uh, especially when you're building what they call robust properties. At the moment, we're still playing with whether we should do that simply because of this reason. If the NDIS, uh, not the NDIS, the Victorian um, rules for tenancy state 
that if the damage is due specifically to someone's disability, yeah, then it's up to the landlord or the SDA provider to pay. Okay. Right? So it's really important you get the right SDA provider who knows what they're doing yes. because if someone's disability is damaging things, right, yeah. which is what we call robust housing for that type of individual, it's intellectual disability, et cetera, et cetera, then they damage your door frame. Guess what? The investor has to pay. Or a side deal has to be done with a care provider to take some money out of their kitty to pay for that, right? Yeah. Now, most providers are reluctant to do that, right? And yeah. what happens, uh, there might be some providers that say, yes, we'll do it, uh, but the tenant has the right to evict the care provider at any point in time. These are the rules under the NDIs. It's what we call okay. choice and control. So if you follow the dotted line here, if they pick yeah. a different provider, the pro that provider doesn't agree with those rules. Yeah. Guess what happens? It's back to the landlord. Back to the landlord. You could be up for, you know, tens of thousands of damage, if yeah, if you build the wrong type of house for the wrong type of participant. So at the moment, we're we're seeing if there's a model that works. We've tried so many different ways for people with intellectual disabilities to own housing uh, for investors to have housing out there for people with intellectual disabilities. There's one big company in, in Melbourne that promotes that and they're facing the same challenges now, exactly what I predicted would happen a year ago to them. Right? I'm not going to name them. I'm not going to shame them. They know who they are. They used to provide a rental guarantee. No more do they provide a rental guarantee. Right? Okay. Right? There's a reason for that. I predicted yeah. this. Um, taking care of those damages. So uh, my recommendation is don't build for at the robust level um, yeah. unless you know what you're doing and you know what the additional costs are likely to be, regardless of what the provider tells you because the buck stops with you as a landlord. Yeah. Right? And people are like, yeah. oh, I just get insurance to pay for it. How many times is insurance going to pay out in one of their houses? Considering yeah. if their disability is damaged and they damage it on a daily basis, insurance will pay out once, twice, three times. After that, they'll say no more. Yeah. Yeah. And then you'll be struggling to find an insurance company to look yeah. after you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So no. yeah, it's it's getting all those ducks in a row, isn't it? Just yeah. making sure you've got the right people who understand the whole process. Yeah. And so what we're considering on doing for some of our houses have a repairs and maintenance budget of two and a half thousand that we will pay for. After that, it's up to the landlord, but usually that covers most of the repairs and maintenance in a disability house. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's 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 more involved, isn't it? There's a lot more involvement because you need to get those ducks in a row. Yeah. There's got to be some pain for, you know, double the market rent. You've got yeah. to understand. And that's, that's a reality, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You've yeah. got to understand that. And, have, you know, I suppose educated by people like yourself to, you know, understand it. Don't just go with somebody who might be um, just starting this on the side. And... Yeah. So for the share housing, it's really important to get in. Get in. That, that's a really good thing for a first-time investor. I love that product for a first-time investor because you have flexibility whether you lease that out to a normal house or you lease that as it is a share house, right? Yeah. Your literal only cost is really furniture, and it's important you get with a good property manager like our good friend, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Our good, yes. good friend is David Tong, who has yeah. been on yeah. a few times. Yeah, it's so, all good. And I have a I have a fairly exclusive agreement to for some of my clients with David. He provides a rental guarantee of sorts, even for the share housing. Right? Oh wow! Yeah. yeah. So um, it's exclusive to you know my properties that I've got with him, but I. I you, you need to find a good property manager. And you, if you find a bad property manager, you could have an empty house or a really badly damaged house if you don't yeah. have a good property manager. Yeah. 
So, yeah, get those ducks all in a row. Thank you so much, Gloria, for breaking the mould when it comes to more lucrative investing. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you to get some advice on their investment properties, how can they contact you? Great. So it's a really easy way is either, just the easiest way is go on our website, 10propertiesin10years.com. One three hundred six one seven six double seven, and yeah. those that love WhatsApp, you feel free to uh, WhatsApp us on our business WhatsApp. This is the way the world is going. On zero four five two two four zero nine four two. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Goro. It's been a pleasure to have you on our Real Estate Right podcast. We'll also have all your details on our show notes and on our social media. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. And now next week we have our stylist and trading guru, Dean Davis from Enclo Property to talk to us about how to update your kitchen when you're putting your property on the market. Dean has given us some great tips on how to make it affordable but effective. And now more than ever, it's the time to make your property stand out, so don't miss it. Real Estate Right is produced by Real Copyright, one of Melbourne's leading real estate copywriting companies, and is written, hosted, and produced by me, Sue Langada, with the support of my production and social media assistant, Lisa Fisher. All information given on this podcast is a guide only and delivered to help you understand the intricacies that can happen in real estate. We recommend that you get professional advice that is designed for your own personal circumstances. We would like to thank Podbean for hosting this podcast, Premium Beat for their music, Francis Morello for his voiceover, and Zoom for the recording. If you have a real estate story that is inspiring or a great how-to tip, please contact Lisa on 59778889 to find out how you can be a guest on Real Estate Right in 2022. If you would like to know more about our copywriting services, please email Lisa at orders at realcopyright.com.au. Thank you for listening to Real Estate Right. It's where buyers, sellers, renters and investors get their real estate right.